The character of Biden is very complex. I mean, he's he's obviously the villain. Uh, you know, he, he, he's willing to kidnap people. He's willing to kill human beings and, and for his cause. But he, like a lot of great leaders, uh, has a real passion for what he considers to be his people. It's quite a, a, a fun thing to play. It really was a, a complicated character. And you don't always get those in television. Hi, I'm Jeff Yeager. You might remember me as Aiden from Star Trek Voyager's Flesh and Blood. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, I'm very excited to bring you a guest that I was able to nerd out with in a very different way than usual. This person started as an actor, including his role as Aiden in the seventh season of Star Trek Voyager two-parter Flesh and Blood, and then he transitioned into sculpting some of the coolest high-end statues out there of famous faces like Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800 from Terminator, classic universal monsters like the creature from the Black Lagoon, or really any of the many Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney characters, Vincent Price, Indiana Jones, the Predator, Pinhead from Hellraiser, and so many more, including one he has a special familial connection with in Freddy Krueger, but we'll get to that later on. Beyond Jeff's appearance in Star Trek Voyager, you've also seen him work in the original V series, Murder, She Wrote, New Heart, Tales from the Crypt, Walker, Texas Stranger, which of course we're going to talk about today, Doogie Hauser, Seinfeld, Millennium, Angel, Without a Trace, Bones, and many, many, many more. But these days, it's a statue work that I'm most into, and it's a very interesting world to look at from an outsider's perspective peeking in. And personally, as a collector of these things, I really wanted to learn all about this stuff. It's always fascinating to me to speak with someone who left one career deep into it in order to pursue something that they loved a whole lot more. And Jeff Yeager is one of those guests. His work speaks for itself, whether it's in front of a camera or in front of a pile of clay. No matter what he does... Jeff Yeager is shaping something special every time he creates, and I'm very happy to share our discussion with you today. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies, so if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
Among other things, today's guest has been a holographic freedom fighter, a medieval knight who got karate kicked, a shock jock involved in a murder mystery, and according to Elaine from Seinfeld, the most sponge-worthy actor that I've ever spoken to on this podcast. Jeff Yeager, wow. welcome to Trek Untold. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. How's that oh, for an intro? <laughs> I know, I, I'm never going to live that that uh, Seinfeld thing down, but okay. <laughs> I have to tell you, you know, I didn't get that joke as a kid. Uh, I just rewatched it recently. Good, just, good. Just had, like, oh. I wondered about your parents. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no. no, I was that guy for about two years after that. So that, that was, that was a hard bell to unring. <laughs> <laughs> good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Jeff, welcome to Trek Untold here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we got a lot to talk about. You've had quite a career in acting, but I know these days you've removed yourself from that world. You're in a completely different area. I want to talk all about that, too, because it's very well aligned with all my nerdy interests. But uh, oh, first, good, things first, good. <clears throat> first things first, yeah. let's just go with uh, the question I love to ask all my guests on this show. Jeff, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching the show? Uh, actually, kind of. Yeah, I mean, um, um, by the time I started watching it, it wasn't prime time anymore. Um, and I used to get off, got out of school around three o'clock and it would be in our local station at four o'clock. So I'd come home every day and, you know, you watch a couple of those and you get hooked. And so every day after school before homework and all that stuff, I just turn it on and watch it. And I, you know, my, my father was a big electronics nut and he was, he worked for um, general electric. So we always had televisions in everybody's rooms. So uh, yeah, I got uh, in my own little room, my own little private room. I got to, I got to watch the episodes and I got to watch them in black and white, which was interesting. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, oh yeah. Big fan ever since I was a kid. That definitely does sound actually interesting because Star Trek was really meant to be like the mm-hmm. gateway for color television and you're watching it in black and white. And I'm so curious you now, someone who grew up watching mm-hmm. it that way, first time you ever saw it in color, did that just blow your mind? It did actually. I, I was amazed at how bright it was. The same thing happened with lost in space because I saw the lost in space in black and white too. And, uh, when when uh, they started doing uh, Saturday afternoon reruns of that show, just how bright the colors were was just kind of an amazing thing. Jeff, I'd like to get a little more background info about you, too, here. Uh, can you tell us where you grew up, who your parents were, and what little Jeff Yeager wanted to be when he grew up? <laughs> well, uh, I well, first of all, I, I was born in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, shortly afterwards, we moved to New York for a while and then we settled in, uh, in Illinois, in Decatur, Illinois. So I was about as Midwest as you can get. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, for, for when I was really young, I wanted to be a police officer until my, my grandfather, who was a police officer, um, uh, on my mom's side. And, uh, he, he used to tell me all the horror stories of, you know, he actually would have to, you know, shoot at people that were shooting back at him. And I thought, you know what, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I'll just act like I'm a police officer because I, you know, I watch him on television and stuff. And, and so I decided, well, then if I can't be a police officer, I'm going to be an actor and, and act like one. And I've, I've known I wanted to be an actor since I was about seven years old. And everybody would kind of laugh and go, oh, yeah, well, that, you know, that's really hard. You know, they tell you, oh, that's a really tough. Uh, but I, I just kind of knew I would do it and uh, and uh, started acting in plays when I was in high school, like like we all do, and went uh, majored in it in college and, and uh, got into the Yale Drama School. And that's kind of when my parents started to say, OK, well, maybe this is serious. Maybe this could happen. So uh, and, uh, you know, we, we moved to Ohio. So, again, Centerville, Ohio, about as far away from Hollywood as you can possibly dream. and. Uh, and then when my parents split up, um, my mother said, where do you want to go? And my brother and I both looked at each other and went, Hollywood. 
And so when she moved out to California, she took us with her. And so uh, we kind of started started our careers uh, sponging off my mother. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great way to do it, though. I mean, you're you're literally not in Kansas anymore. because You guys went from Midwest eating your cheese curd over to suddenly <clears throat> Hollywood. And uh, no one knows what the heck that thing even is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was no, it was a big, big culture shock for me. Actually, going to Yale was a big culture shock for me because, you know, I went to Ohio State and. Um, you know, you got kids that are 18 years old that are reading the Wall Street Journal in New York. And, you know, it's a it's kind of a different world there, you know, yeah. <clears throat> but I knew how to grow corn and none of them did. So <laughs> you got them there. That's very yeah, true. Yeah. My my father was a farmer growing up. And so we spent um, summers at uh, my grandfather's farm. So um, I learned to which actually ironically came in handy later. I learned to drive a tractor when I was five. And uh, yeah, and I did a, um, a show called Mysterious Ways where I played a farmer and they used an old fashioned tractor. And they said, well, we'll show you how to uh, you know, drive this thing. And I said, I got this. And I just got up and uh, knew, how to, knew how to operate the tractor. So. That's really cool. And then, you know, the interesting thing, too, is when you hear Yale, you know, usually the first thing you think about is Ivy League school with all these intellectuals. And you never really think of the fact that there is a theatrical acting program over there. I'm curious to know what was like one of the biggest takeaways you picked up while you were at Yale? Uh, well, uh, the Yale drama school is actually one of the, uh, 10 league schools. So it's one of the, the more popular ones in terms of, you know, casting directors, checking it out and stuff. And, uh, Meryl Streep graduated there and Paul Newman went there and all that stuff. So it's got a lot of a great legacy. Um, I, well, I mean, Yale was a, was, was, like I said, it was quite a culture shock. It was quite a different world for me. Um, one of the things I learned was to, uh, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, because what you learn is that people are never so interested in watching you as when you don't know what's going to happen next. And a lot of times as an actor, you try to plan as much stuff as possible because you don't want anything to go wrong. I mean, everybody on stage wants the play to go smoothly. And so you kind of get predictable after a while. And Yale was all about making things unpredictable. Um, which is a great lesson for life because when you, when you go to Hollywood, it's about as unpredictable as you can possibly get. And so, uh, being able to kind of stand in that world and feel okay. And, uh, uh, I, like I said, not know what's coming next and, and look forward to those that, to that excitement, to that heightened reality. Um, it makes you a better actor, a more exciting actor and somebody that, that can think on their feet that way is good for Hollywood because they move very fast. You better come up with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, I'm hoping you can clear up something that's on your IMDb here. Cause typically like one of my first questions is asking my guests, what was their very first professional gig? And according to IMDb, it's V. Is that, is that true? Is that accurate? That is true. Wow. Is so true. yeah. So you were, I know you were Kyle Bates in that <clears throat> series. And so your, right. your first professional acting gig in Hollywood was a multi-episode part in one of the biggest sci-fi series that didn't have Trek or Battlestar in its name. That's, that's pretty darn epic, Jeff. Yeah, I got it. It was a series regular. Um, they were looking for a, a new guy, and I'd actually auditioned for a because uh, I I I left uh, school for the summer to come and spend some time with my mom and my friends and stuff like that. And somebody who'd seen me in a play at Yale, I wanted to be my manager, and said, you know, I'll just send you out on a couple of things. Maybe we can get you a guest star or something, and we'll get you your SAG card, which is what you know um, is the first big hurdle you have to leap when you're trying to be a professional actor. And so I said, great, you know, and I went out and there was a guy who said, well, I won't really be your agent, but I'll send you out and we'll see how it goes. And he sent the first audition he sent me out on was something for uh, Alice, which was a sitcom at the time with uh, 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 I forget who all was in that. But anyway, 
Um, and they liked me and they brought me back a couple of times. And then the casting director had also been looking for Kyle Bates for a while and had read a whole bunch of people and hadn't been very happy. And she goes, you know what? Dump this. I want you to read something else for me. And uh, five auditions later, I had the part. So five auditions and a screen test later. So it was a it was a long, you know, a long process. But uh, yeah, that, that was my first gig. I mean, that is pretty amazing. And to get like a major recurring role right away, too. I mean, that's a big undertaking for someone who's, you know, like you said, you basically mm-hmm. were taking your summer off. Now here you are suddenly booking a pretty extensive gig for yourself. Right. Uh, so, you know, I'd love to hear any lessons that you learned and any memories that really stand out for you along the way for this real first time experience. Um. Well, the greatest thing about that show is, I mean, I had to leave school, which was kind of unfortunate, but uh, I, you know, the school was very expensive and, and, you know, television pays very well. It was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And so I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to start. And I, I had a friend of mine who'd also just left school and got, um, uh, his name is John Trelesky. He's an, he's now a director, but he was an actor for years and uh, he had got his own television series uh, as well. And so I kind of thought, well, he seems to be happy. I think I'll follow in his footsteps. And um, um, one of the greatest things about it was um, the I'd never really done action before. I mean, I taught stage combat at Yale, but uh, it wasn't really like the stuff that you do out here where you have stunt people and all those things. And so I was in a big hurry to do my, all my own stunts. Um, I could kind of ride a motorcycle. I could kind of, you know, I, I was really good at uh, faking the fighting. And, and uh, so I tried to do as much of that as possible until I, I, I did an endo over the motorcycle. And <laughs> I remember that one of the producers just like, I see his, like, I'm lying on my back looking up and I see his face come over me and go, uh, Jeff, you're going to be in a truck next week. <laughs> so they took the motorcycle away from me. <laughs> and then there was a time when I was supposed to run into an invisible force field. Of course, I wanted to do this trick myself um, because I'd be running straight at camera. The camera was going to see my face. So I thought, you know what? Just strap me into this thing. And they put a rope uh, uh, attached to my back. And I was supposed to take off at a run. And the rope would bounce me off what was some, this invisible wall that, of course, wasn't there. When I woke up, <laughs> all I did remember is everybody going, you OK? You OK? And I thought, you know what? Uh, maybe stunt guys have this job for a reason. But like I said, that much action has been something I, I, I never got a chance to do on stage. And, you know, so we, we did a lot of what was called running and gunning and fight sequences. And um, I had to learn to ride horses and I had to learn to ride motorcycles better. And I had to learn to uh, deal with uh, pyrotechnics. And so it was a, kind of a whole new world for me. Uh, very exciting. I mean, it really is a pretty huge way just to get into this industry here. And from there, you know, you've got plenty of other gigs that we're not going to be able to talk about today just because of timing. But I do want to discuss one thing that uh, I was actually surprised by in your resume. And this is the thing we talk about a ton of this show. But yeah. uh, you are a record holder here, I think. So you did three episodes of Murder, She Wrote. And, I did. Uh, yeah. You did. And I've, I've talked to a lot of folks on this podcast about that show. It's one of my favorite shows out there. Uh, I just rewatched your episodes as well. And in two of those, you do get to spend some pretty good amounts of time with Jessica, you know, once as like a book agent, second mm-hmm. time as a shock jock who's grilling her, uh, both times with tremendous 80s hairdos. Uh, please talk to me about working with Angela Lansbury, though, besides your hair, because that that hair was outrageous, well, it was, Jeff. I was, it was. I mean, well, I mean, we all had big puffy, puffy heads back in the 80s, and, and that was kind of the style <laughs> back then. But uh, did your hair get a sad card as well? No, but they 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 did threaten after a while that if I didn't cut my hair, they'd stop sending me out. Um, but I liked having the long hair because uh, you know 
everybody who had hair like George Clooney or hair like Tom Cruise or whatever, I mean, the the field of competition was just gigantic. I mean, I, you'd read against 200 other people. But if there's a shock jock and they come in and they're looking like, you know, like a collegiate person and I come in with this long hair and this leather jacket and stuff, I had a little bit of an advantage. So I kind of like playing character parts and I have kind of been a character actor my whole life, even though, uh, you know, tries I made, it kept sticking me and leaving man rolls. Um, but, uh, uh, the, the great thing about doing murder was that, that, uh, you didn't have to read for it. They would just watch people and people that they thought were interesting. And they just offer you the part. And if they liked you, they brought you back to play different characters. So I got to play three different characters on that same show. And, and she was Angela Lansbury was, was about as generous as you could be. I mean, she was just terrific. And of course, a consummate actress and, um, really fun to work with and and i remember one time i was playing her agent and um we were on the universal lot and my parents had come to visit me um from ohio and i thought well maybe i could you know have you come to the set or whatever because they'd never seen me acting you know on on a real tv show and so um they came there and they weren't allowed on they were they 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 got past the guards but um they, there was a closed set, and a closed set means they don't allow visitors because it interrupts the work, and Jessica or uh, uh, Angela was very kind of strict about that. But when she heard it was my folks, she she said, yes, sure, let them in. She spent some time talking to them. She signed autographs for them. I mean, she was just really, really generous and, um, you know, didn't know me all that well. So she was just really, really cool. I liked her a lot. And she seems like just such a great scene partner as well. And you did some pretty diverse stuff with her. I mean, again, your first episode that you did in season three, you spent that one just smooching someone basically in a bed. But your other two episodes, <laughs> you got some real quality time with Angela, which is just amazing. Yeah, that's funny. You, you know, you meet people and you 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 basically climb into bed, you say goodbye, and you never see them again. <laughs> that's Hollywood. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. It is the weirdest job. I won't spend an entire day on the roof of a car after I'd been in a fight and they, they'd thrown me through a glass plated window and I'd landed on the hood of a car and it died. And the next scene was all about my murder. And so there were a whole bunch of actors, you know, walking around and I had to spend the entire day covered in this rubber glass, just lying there thinking, this is the dumbest job ever. I mean, I'm just making money and I'm doing absolutely nothing but lying here in a pile of fake glass. It's a very, very strange job. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like this would be a Flintstones joke where there's like some animal character just saying it's a living covered in broken glass. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you can spend a whole day like opening a door, especially on movies. You know, they do. They go very, very slowly. So, I mean, I think you spent a lot of time getting kicked in the chest for this next one here because we're going to talk about Walker, Texas Ranger. And oh, yeah, I was so excited to see that that was on your resume. Uh, so we're talking medieval crimes from season nine. At this point in Walker, they're just off the rails with their episodes here. Right, uh, right. And you're like the big bad of the week here. And not only are you the big bad guy, you're also a medieval times knight who's got a fight with Walker in the castle on the dirt. It's like one of the absolute wackiest things I've ever seen on Walker, Texas Ranger. I loved it, Jeff. Uh, you got to <laughs> tell me about working with Chuck Norris here. And, and also just a little side note too, you did work with uh, Josh Holloway as well. Pre-lost. Right. Josh was, was my, my, uh, I guess your you would compass. call him your, your sycophantic, uh, assistant. <laughs> or well, yes. Um, uh, and he was just brand new. I think this was like his second job or something. Pretty early for him, yeah. He, yeah, so he was like big, wide-eyed kind of thing. But I was in my element there because, you know, uh, as a, as I said, I was uh, I used to teach stage combat. 
And uh, when you're doing a lot of Shakespeare and stuff like that, you're, I, I was very comfortable with sword work and I'd done, done it quite extensively, which is a little different from what we did uh, as a knight. You, you don't really have the kind of uh, uh, formal uh, method of fighting as you do with saber and foil and all those other things. These are just big old, you know, huge broadswords. And so you're just basically running at the guy and smashing them. But uh, I had a lot of fun. Um, uh, that was kind of when I when I started to realize that maybe I, I was not going to... They put me on this gigantic horse, and I thought, if I have to do anything, I'm getting a stunt guy. Because, uh, you know, this is one of those horses where you can fall off. It's like a story. You know, you're just going to go 12 feet down. Um, but, uh, I, like I said, it was really a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And Chuck Norris, again, beloved. He's beloved. I mean, he comes on set, and everybody just, you know, just digs him because he's you know he's very kind and generous and and he did he had to kick me in the chest and he said and they had a stunt guy for it but for the close-up they wanted to see me and chuck said now listen um don't worry just stand still and i'll control everything and lord knows he was so talented that he didn't actually kick me his foot just kind of lifted me in the air (laughs) And it was very controlled. It, it didn't hurt or anything like that. He just kind of took his foot and just pushed me up in the air, and I fell back on the on the uh, furniture pad. And it was it was great. It was great. I had a great time doing that show. I've had a few other guests who have done Walker, and in particular, uh, one very recently was Patrick Kilpatrick, and he was again the big bad of the week in that episode. Mm. And he talked about how there's this kind of like unwritten rule on Walker, where if you're the bad guy, you don't actually attack Chuck. You are the one who just gets beat up the entire time. You don't really land a single hit on him. Is that is that accurate for your experience? Uh, well, in, in our particular fight, yeah, no, I, I, he just, he came right up to me and he, he, you know, done me in with one, with a single blow. So, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> I got to go early. <laughs> yeah. Not, not such a bad thing. Not such a bad thing. At no, all, no, no. He, but he, like I said, he's a great guy. Really sweet. Well, I've got a little obscure show for you now here. And I'm curious if you remember anything from it. Uh, yeah. cause I've had a few guests on this podcast who have also been in it and that show is called O'Hara. And that was a oh, crime wow. drama that starred Pat yeah. Morita. Yeah, we're going That's way back right. to this one. Uh, it also had Madge Sinclair, Kevin Conroy, a.k.a. the greatest Batman ever. Uh, a lot of great guest stars. Your episode, in fact, had a Star Trek alumni in Carolyn Seymour on it. Uh, so oh, I'd love wow. to hear if you have any memories of being on that show and working with Pat. Um, I, Pat, again, is, is, is somebody who is very, very nice and very sweet and very polite. Um, and which is not always the case, you know, when you're doing a guest star, um, sometimes you can feel because everybody else is kind of a family, you know, and they've been working together for a while and they know each other and they've gone to each other's barbecues and things like that. And so you kind of, uh, in some shows feel like an outsider and uh, I didn't, I mean, it's good to get sometimes to get the first, I think it was the first season I did, of uh, O'Hara, um, and so everybody's still kind of learning each other and really new. But I remember feeling very welcome there. I believe, if memory serves, that I played a sculptor, which is uh, ironic now. Uh, so <laughs> uh, uh, I don't remember too much about the show, except I think I, again, was the bad guy. Um, you tend to go through a phase as a leading man. If you're, you go to leading man, and then as you get older, you start to play bad leading man. And then uh, you you kind of train. If you're lucky, you transition to the character roles. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> that's kind of a phase that you go through. But uh, all I can remember is that it, that it was a very welcome place to be, very family. You know. Trek Untold will return momentarily. 
Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars. And uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write. And I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain... Sonia Gomez, signing off. All right. Well, Jeff, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion here. And that comes right. in the form of a wonderful doctor-centric two-parter from the seventh season of Star Trek Voyager. This one is flesh and blood. Before you booked this gig, had you ever auditioned for any Star Trek roles before? Uh, no, I had not. First timer. Um, actually, you know what? That's not true. I did audition for... Um, the the uh, original um, w- when they first started to bring it back, TNG um, Next Generation. Yes, the Next Generation. Um, and I had auditioned. I just come off V, and I auditioned for the uh, first mate or the first uh, officer. Oh, so you were trying out for Riker's position. Yes. Ah. But I was still in my early twenties, and I think it was a little young for the part. But uh, I do remember auditioning for that. And then not uh, 
not again for quite some time. I think back then, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really considered um, uh, an easy transition out of out of science fiction. If you did science fiction, you kind of got stuck there. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, now if you're not on a Marvel movie or something like that, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're out of it. You're not, you know, you're not a real star. Um, so I was kind of avoiding, I think, doing a second after V doing second. Uh, uh, I mean, I did some stuff with my brother. Um, I was the Crypt Keeper's father uh, on, a, on the, uh, the uh, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt show. Right. Um but I uh, hadn't done that in a while. And in fact, uh, uh, I think it was Robert Picardo who told me about the part that was coming up and uh, asked if I was interested in it. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, because I, you know, I spoke to Brian about you. And Brian Fuller was the guy who wrote the episodes. And, and Brian actually had collected some of my my sculpting. So he kind of knew who I was. And 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 so I think Bob was pitching me as an actor and he did, he didn't quite understand. He kind of went, well, well, can, can he act? I mean, he didn't really know. <laughs> and so, um, so I went in and I did a, a, a reading for, uh, Brian and for, uh, uh, Kenny, uh, Biller and, uh, apparently didn't screw up cause they cast me. So can you help me out with the timeline of this also here and not to dig too personal into your life as well, but your wife is Megan Gallagher. And right. she's a multi-time Trek alumni as well, among other things. Uh, so, you know, and she did Star Trek timeline wise before you did Star Trek. She did. So were you guys at this point together or or not yet? Oh, we were married by this. Point. OK, so you guys are already married. All right. So then, like, did uh, oh, she yeah. have any pro tips for getting into Star Trek? <laughs> um, no, she just she just said she'd had a great time doing. She did this something called Little Green Men, which was in uh, was in one of the first Star Trek series. Yeah, and DS9, um, a great episode. Right, right. And uh, and I had known some of the people who had done the shows over the years, and they all uh, said the, the one thing that you had to watch out for is that, um, you know, sometimes we're allowed to improv a little bit or to change lines a little bit. And in, in if we feel like something fits our, our personality better or something, we, we can make minor changes. But Star Trek was like the Bible. Uh, you had to do it word for word, which is I liked because, uh, you know, where you, when you do plays, you have to give that 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 kind of respect to the to the authors of the place as well. And so um I was just kind of a guy who 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 enjoyed making things work no matter what they sounded like or no matter how they were written. Um so uh yeah that was the only thing she told me is that you have to you have to memorize everything word for word and has and even the thes ands of everything had to be perfect. And so that was right up my alley. So your character was the Bajoran named Aiden. He was the leader of this rogue group of holograms. And this episode, I, I will admit, it's a very interesting one. It's a story with a lot of meat on the bones here. It's really fun to rewatch this because I've seen it before. In fact, uh, I think last time I watched it was for episode eight of this very podcast when I interviewed Spencer Garrett. We'll, we'll chat about him a little bit here. But yes, I'm curious and... what you thought about the plot for this one. What you thought about the story? Because for me, I think it's a pretty great one. How do you feel about it? I was I, I was very interested in this story, which is why part of the reason why I agreed to 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 read for it, um, because the character of Aiden is very complex. I mean, he's he's obviously um, the villain. Uh, you know, he, he he's willing to kidnap people. He's willing to kill human beings and for his cause. But he, like a lot of great leaders, uh, has a real passion for what he considers to be his people, who, the, the holograms and the ones that are the slaves. So there was a whole. Kind of. I mean, I'm never going to know what it was actually like to be, uh, to live through something like that. But having the chance to advocate for 
the freedom of the people that you love at the same time that you are um, losing your mind, uh, which he kind of uh, does as the episode goes on because he begins to realize that he's not going to win, uh, is quite a, a, a fun thing to play. It really was a, a complicated character. And you don't always get those in television. I mean, television tends to be, and they only have an hour to tell a story. So the characters that you play are kind of uh, one note because they, they have to service a very, very quick story. So you don't have time, like say you would in a movie, to get to know that somebody's both good and bad, which everybody is. But this didn't have that. This had both a good side and a bad side, and I could understand both sides. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It was very well written. And this is going to be one of the many nerdy things I say in this podcast here. But when I did that little intro for you about 30 minutes ago, when I was writing it up, I was like, do I want to call Iden a terrorist or a freedom fighter? Because there is a blurred line between these two characters here. And that's something exactly Star right. Trek has, has talked about a lot with their characters. Well, that's the great thing about Star Trek. I mean, they do try to uh, explore um, the, the, the parts of people that don't always get talked about and certainly don't, I mean, you know, Star Trek, of course, had the first uh, interracial kiss. It had the first uh, um, uh, interracial uh, uh, relationships in a professional uh, um, way that, that uh, I mean, surpassed all the other television shows and w- was more inclusive than any other television show. And so all of those themes uh, that they that they talk, in fact, I, I had never seen the series before I had done it. And uh actually became a fan after i uh after i read the the episodes and did the show and talked to robert about it um i I really started to enjoy some of the themes that they explored so you mentioned that you've already done some stuff on tales from the crypt which to me sounds like Uh you probably did some makeup and prosthetics so talk to me about the outfit for iden here because i feel like that's probably a walk in the park for you compared to some of the stuff that you've done Oh Lord! I mean, I took. There's a little bit of a nose piece and some earrings and some other things that they uh, that they did, and it was nothing compared to some of. The, I mean, when I was the crypt keeper's father, I had I would I played Enoch the two faced man, and uh, they sculpted a prosthesis, prosthesis that went onto my head that had a, a mechanical head on one side with all these servo motors. So the entire time I'm acting, I can hear you know, is there you know hitting the uh because it's all electrical and that i believe that makeup took seven hours in the chair so i had to be there at three o'clock in the morning before i could even start and they had a harness for me with a hump back and which was really uh uncomfortable so yeah i've been through and you know my brother being a makeup artist i mean ever since we were 12 years old we come out of the basement and our forehead we'd go hi mom on our foreheads we'd go dun 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 you know we, we were constantly experimenting on each other so i've been um in fact one of the first um <laughs> one of the first mistakes I ever made is I, I wanted to take a face cast of my face. You know, it's something you work uh, from and you can put clay on and form pieces and that makes prosthesis, you know, eventually it comes out in rubber. Um, but instead of reading uh, the book on how to make a face cast as I did, I just kind of looked at the pictures and it looked like they were putting plaster on their face. Well, what they were putting on was something called alginate which is like what you take dental impressions with. It kind of hardens to the consistency of of boiled egg white. Well, not knowing this, I laid down as a 13-year-old kid on my back in the basement and covered my face in plaster of Paris um, with, you know, straws so I could breathe. And plaster of Paris heats up to about 185 degrees as it's, you know, getting solid. And it 
locked onto my jaw. And so I'm pounding the basement floor until my brother Kevin comes down and I'm, I, you know, I'm making a, 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 a sign that he should bring me a pad and paper. And I'm like, get me out of this thing. And so both of us were trying to work to, you know, get this thing off my jaw. And we finally worked my face out. And I just remember pulling it down. And then this entire seven pound piece of plaster is hanging from my eyelashes, which are still stuck in the plaster because I hadn't greased my face, which I would have known to do had I read this entire book. But uh, because I didn't, I pulled every hair, eyelash, eyebrow out of my face. Oh, geez. Uh, yes. And I looked very strange for about three months. Uh, <laughs> but I got the, I got my first face cast and of course did, you know, started experimenting with all the prosthetics from there. But so yes, um, I've been through the ringer several times with the makeup uh, and uh, the, uh, the eye makeup was nothing. It was a couple hours. I mean, compared to that. Yeah. I don't think you could really top that. Um... No, no, <laughs> no, no. I've done a lot of stuff. And, and I was Kevin's model when he uh, got into the union. So he did a whole bunch of different makeup on me and he did old age makeups. And um, in fact, I, I was kind of dismayed looking through uh, one of my old picture books of, of uh, I had done an old make uh, old man makeup on myself for college for a, a role that I was playing. And I actually kind of look like that now, which is disheartening, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that one up. Jeff. Uh, <laughs> you just broke Kids, don't try this at home. Yeah, You'll seriously, folks. <laughs> so back to uh, Star Trek, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. So <laughs> you spent a lot of time this episode with Robert Picardo aboard the yep. hologram vessel. How did you enjoy working with Robert? And uh, did oh. you get a chance to chat with him uh, off camera? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, Robert and I, we've known each other for years. So um, in fact, we, you know, our families were really tight and we've spent all of our Christmases together and Thanksgivings together and stuff like that. So, um, but to actually see him work, was interesting because, you know, he's kind of very easygoing, you know, easygoing guy. He knows a lot about cooking and about wines. And, you know, I kind of knew him as that guy. Um, but uh, he really does analyze a script very, very well. Um, and he has all kinds of ideas. And, and, and we had many, many scenes together. And, you know, we would go through a reading and then he would come up with so many things, so many ideas for us to do and try. And um, I loved how experimental he was. So, uh, you know, just had a great time with Bob. And I believe uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you illustrated one of Robert's books as well, right? I did. Yeah. He, um, he actually had been given, a, offered a book deal by Simon Schuster and he didn't know what to do. And I told him, I said, you know, uh, you, you should write a book about, uh, what it's like to be a hologram or an AI and what you think of the strangeness of human beings. And his eyes lit up and he goes, that's it, that's it. And so he wrote the Holograms Handbook about how to deal with human beings. And then he was also able to work in uh, anecdotes from the different shows that he'd done, which was kind of clever. And uh, so he asked me if I'd like to illustrate for him. He knew I, I could draw and uh, paint and sculpt and stuff. And I said, great. And we ended up doing a series of cartoons, which they made about postage stamp size, which I didn't like, but... Uh, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I still get, uh, I still get Simon and Schuster sends me like little, little, um, I guess they're kind of reports about how the book is doing. That was fun with working with them. Again. I mean, that's pretty cool. Not just to be able to say you were on Star Trek, but you also are part of the Star Trek book history. That's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty rare thing to happen. Also. That was good. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we should add, you know, your time in the makeup chair was pretty short, but this episode, you're surrounded by folks who clearly had to spend a lot more time in that chair. I mean, there's Borgs, there's Cardassians, there's pretty much any alien that's appeared on Star Trek. They're there in this episode as holograms. Uh, and plus, we right. should also add, you know, Roxanne Dawson comes in part two as a pretty integral character. Um, yep. So, you know, just talk to me about working on this particular episode right now and all the moving pieces here. I mean, was it a hectic shoot schedule for you or, or how how was the experience overall? Um, well, uh, I had quite a bit to do in both uh, part one and two. So um, we would go over quite a bit. Um, uh, and they, they have a thing called turnaround where you're supposed to have a certain amount of hours between the time you leave and the time you return. And because... Uh, a lot of the actors have early calls with their makeup and stuff like that. They have to break turnaround um, and they have to, you know, pay money for that, which, you know, actors all love. So, uh, yeah. Oh, God, I, I'm telling you, <laughs> I've made so much money from the residuals of that show. How much have they, you they, made? They just show it and show it. Oh, my God, it's a lot. So, I, I mean, I probably made five times as much as the actual original gig paid over the years and just in residuals. But uh um, but back to the show. Um, one of the challenges was, of course, getting the Bible correct so that I never missed a beat. Um, another thing was they had uh, come up with a brand new ship, which was uh, the holograms uh, vessel. And I was the captain of this thing. But what you begin to, to, to see is that none of these things are real. They, you know, they build all these machines and these things that, you know, and you start to wonder, well, now, wait a minute. I've got six balls here. Now, how do I operate this ship? What do I do? And you have to talk to somebody who's kind of a specialist. They have a, a person who knows, you know, all of the ins and outs of, of, and they would tell you, well, if you, if you, you know, rub this ball clockwise, it does this thing and counterclockwise does this. And so you would actually spend a great deal of time when you weren't acting, uh, learning the fake machines. So that you actually appeared to know what you were doing when you were flying. So because uh, otherwise I simply would have been lost. But uh, so it kind of felt a little bit like I did a musical one time for for CBS uh, called Shangri-La Plaza. And, uh, you know, in between actual takes, you'd have to do a lot of dancing and singing rehearsals. And it kind of felt like that um, where you, you know, you'd have to learn all the ins and outs of the Star Trek world as you were, you know, in, in between takes. It's definitely a lot. You know, Star Trek is always an undertaking, no matter what part you are, oh, whether yeah. you're a big role or a little role. It's still always a lot to figure out as you go into it. Um, now, you know, we did mention earlier that this episode also features a Trek Untold alumni in Spencer Garrett. And we spoke to him Spence. all the way back in episode eight here of this podcast. So I'd love to hear about working with him uh, just because he's such a cool guy. But also he told me a story on the podcast about the opening scene of this episode. I don't know if you recall it, but basically the Herosian are hunting the holograms and Spencer and a bunch of other guys pop up out of the water and blast them. And he told me he spent so much time in that water and it was so gross. He got sick for like the first few days. <laughs> you remember any of that? I, I don't. Well, actually, um, that sequence was shot before I came on. So I think they right. did that day one. Um, and I think it's so it, just, you know, in case they kill the actors that they can replace them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's way to put yes. it. So he told me that story. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. You'll do a love scene. Um, if you have a love scene in a movie or a television series, they do that day one. Because if if certain actors don't get along and then they find out that they don't like each other as you go on and then they have to try to shoot it later, it can be a problem. Hmm. So they get that out of the way right away. 
So I'm sure there was some reason for that being being day one for Spence. And he told me about it, but I, I didn't actually witness him coming out of the water. But he, I do remember he was very uncomfortable. But they had the, that that entire um, exterior was built inside the soundstage on Paramount yeah. on the Paramount lot, which was really incredible. I mean, cliffs they would build from paper mache and you know uh, uh, just had a, tons and tons of sand on the floor, you know, to represent them. It was really cool for me because I really loved shows like um, Lost in Space and uh, and Star Trek, of course, and you know all of the old television shows that it, it just kind of reminded me of of those those episodes that I loved so much as a kid. And here I was actually doing them. Uh, so that's what I recall just from those first days is uh, just running around with Bob. And of course, you know, and here's a, here's another thing. When, you, when you're shooting a laser gun, you have to remind yourself because when, when you fake a gun, uh, you, you fake the kick. You know, there's a little kickback from the explosion. And so my first instinct would be that, you know, I, I'd be shooting guys like this and Bob have to keep reminding me uh, a laser gun that should actually have a recoil, right? There's nothing being fired. So you're just pointing and pointing and pointing. And so it was really kind of a, a funny transition to, to try to suddenly go from shooting, you know, machine guns my whole life to lasers. Um, you know, it, it, one of those little things you'd never think you'd have to actually learn. Um, but I remember Spencer just being, you know, I mean, he's super confident, super friendly. I mean, everybody loves him. He's the mayor. He knows everybody. Um, and has become a great friend to us, uh, my family. And again, he spends uh, holidays with us. and. Um, but, uh, I, at the time I, I smoked. And so Bob Picardo, who didn't at the time, I think I corrupted him during that, uh, during those two episodes because he, he, hey, can I, can I, uh, we'd like, you know, have them together when we were, you know, we were allowed to smoke in the, on the soundstage, which is very unusual. They don't allow that anymore. And Spencer used to call them smoky treats. So every time Bob and I would light up, he'd go, hey, Smokey Treat, maybe come and smoke with us. And so that's kind of how we got to know each other. <laughs> Smokey Treats. Smokey Treats. That's going to be a new yeah. t-shirt here on Trek Untold. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I said, this episode is so much fun to watch again. It's definitely one of the better ones of season seven. And there's a lot of good ones in season seven. But this one really stands out for me. It's a pretty complex issue here being dealt with. Uh, great acting from you. And of course, Bob Picardo, Spencer, everybody else is in this oh. one. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm curious great. to get your thoughts on this one. Did you watch it when it first aired? Um, I did. Uh, I went over to Bob's house, oh, and uh, yeah, party? yeah, he had this beautiful house in Pasadena, and they we had uh, a big dinner together, and we watched the show uh, when it came on the air for the first time. So yeah, that was fun. That was fun. What did you think of yourself? How would you rate your performance? <sighs> you know, I, 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 I see a lot of flaws in everything I do. So you know. Um, I'm going to say you should have done this. You should have done that. Um, but I think overall, uh, I kind of liked it. I, 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 I liked the different look on my, you know, with the makeup that they used. I thought that worked really well. Um, I thought working with Bob was great. I mean, you could just see that he's just a consummate performer, uh, in that. And I, I, I was trying to do something that, um, was, I, I wanted him to be, very soft spoken uh but lethal so i wanted a kind of a dangerous combination of, of of quiet calm uh threat going on the entire time and i think sometimes um i was a little hard to hear because of that <laughs> so that would be the only change i would have made but overall i thought it was pretty good that was all right 
Yeah, and I'm not, I'm very tough on myself, so. Hey everybody, we'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. So, Jeff, that's your time in Star Trek. But, you, you know, we, you and I were talking earlier before the show started recording. And, you know, at this point, you've kind of left Hollywood. You're in a different area now. And it's kind of like for folks watching the video version, this is the elephant in the room. Because for the last almost hour, we've been staring at your back wall, which is filled with these oh, yes. beautiful sculptures here. So. That's actually how I kind of know you first, Jeff, is not as an actor on Star Trek, but as a sculptor, because your work has been sold in statue form by the likes of Sideshow Collectibles. And uh, it's it's some gorgeous stuff here. So I want to spend some time talking about that. And I'd love to know how you transitioned from Hollywood, Hollywood acting into the world of being a professional sculptor. Well, uh, I kind of grew up in the world of, of art and sculpture and um paintings and specifically makeup effects my brother is kevin yeager and uh he created the look of freddy krueger and he created the chucky doll from child's play and the crypt keeper from tales from the crypt on hbo and so uh he and i kind of grew up um because kevin was an actor too uh early on when we were in high school and we would all do we would do our own makeups and stuff and try to you know outdo each other and i remember one time coming home and i'd just done a a Frankenstein makeup uh, that I was very proud of. And I had photos of it and things like that. And Kevin said, Oh, well, that's great. And, and he said, look at this. And he took the, a towel off of a, a, a plaster head that he'd made of himself. And he'd done this old age makeup that was so perfect and so beautiful. And I just kind of went, okay, I'm the actor and you're the makeup artist. So, so I went on to uh, study at uh, Ohio state and major in acting and went on to the Yale drama school and Kevin uh, he went to, uh, Ohio state as well, but he just spent most of his time working on his, his, uh, uh, sculpting and things. And, and was lucky enough when, um, a guy who wanted to be my manager, uh, had put me on the series V. Um, and I had, and I went back to school for a little while to just to, you know, get all my stuff out of there. And I said, listen, while I'm gone, you know, see what you can do for my brother. He's really, really talented. And he got Kevin uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which then, of course, shot, you know, uh, Robert England into the stratosphere. And Kevin, you know, became a very, very serious player after that. So um, so I kind of grown up around sculpting my whole life. And I don't know if you know what it's like to be on a soundstage or on a set, um, but there's a lot of downtime that actors have when you're in your trailer. And, um, and if you've learned your lines, which aren't really very difficult to learn because you're only doing a couple of pages a day. Um, you have a lot of kind of time on your hands and people handle it in different ways. They'll, um, 
go to the set and chat and meet new friends and, or they'll go to their trailers and write or make phone calls or whatever it is. And I started uh, just kind of, I've always been a collector uh, since I was a kid of models and uh, fantasy stuff and uh, stuff from uh, science fiction and horror. And so I thought, you know what, I, I haven't, I haven't seen any new models coming out in quite some time since I was, uh, you know, much younger. And so I thought, well, I'll just try to make one my, myself. And so I would kind of amuse myself in my trailer by uh, working in this thing called a uh, Sculpey, which is like a, it's like for kids, you know, it's like a little clay that you can fire in your home oven. And I would make these little characters. And, and uh, I started doing some of the Hammer film characters. And the first thing I did was Oliver Reed's Curse of the Werewolf, because it was my favorite horror movie. My my father used to let us stay up as late as we wanted on our birthdays. And there was, I always wanted to do it on Saturday because that's when the horror movies were on. And I remember seeing that and really, really being affected by the, by how great that film was. And, um, one of the makeup artists, uh, 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 came by and I think it was, uh, Howard Kurtzman who, uh, went on to do some of the, um, alien stuff. And, and uh, he took a look at it and he said, you know, you could you could sell that if you wanted to. And I, I said, really, how do I do that? And I just got the idea to take it uh, to take this this piece that I'd done to a place called Kitcraft, which is um, a, a local hobby store was until it closed last year. But um, it was a very, very popular haunt with all the makeup artists and all the prop people. And um, you could just about get anything that you wanted to in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, arts and crafts and and they sold a lot of model kits from japan and i said listen i made this you guys but i can make more of them and uh do you think you could sell this and they said well let's put it in the window see what it does and it was gone in an hour and they called me and they said you have more and so i knew how to make molds from you know studying with kevin because they have to make molds or people's for uh to make prosthetics for monsters faces and things like that and they used a thing called LW101, which is a two-part polyurethane uh, plastic that just two chemicals you mix together and it gets hard in about a minute. And you rotate it inside, a, you know, with your hands, you can just rotate the mold. And he said, we use it to make teeth and, and claws and things. And why don't you try that? And uh, so I was able to to kind of recreate the hollow kits that you used to buy when you were a kid, you know. And I don't know if you were collected. Kits. Yeah, exactly. The Aurora model kits, which were, I had all of them, you know, and I, I was kind of like a closeted collector. I wouldn't like tell anybody about it until I started, uh, somebody's, uh, I, I kind of gained popularity through people knowing who I was through this place called Kitcraft and all of the other makeup artists buying my stuff too, because they're all nerd collectors like we all are. And, um, then companies started calling me. Uh, there's a company called Monarch. There, and there's a company called Mobius, and they were all they all wanted to be the next Aurora, and they would call me and have me do prototypes for them. And uh, the more I did it, uh, I kind of uh, gained a following, and and then started to get so busy with the requests that I had that I was actually spending more time doing this than I was uh, uh, acting. And uh, I found I kind of liked the control because I could be my own boss and I could say no to this and yes to this or whatever I wanted to do. And then Sideshow started to become this juggernaut. And, and a lot of the guys who had worked at Kidcraft went on to be to work for Sideshow and to actually, you know, uh, uh, become pretty uh, high up in that company. And so um, when they started asking me to work for them, suddenly, you know, I was quite busy and, and uh, doing things that were 
were popular all over the world and uh, started to get a fan base in Japan and Australia and uh, 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 South Korea. And so at some point, I just kind of made the transition. I thought, you know, I'm, I, I'm getting kind of long in the tooth to go and audition for people who are half my age. And uh, I'm kind of the uh, at the top of the mountain in this particular uh, very small niche uh, and which has grown and grown and grown. And, and, and of course, Sideshow has just become a juggernaut now. I mean, they oh, yeah. have a fleet of trucks and, you know, multi, multi-million dollar company. And uh, so I kind of cut my teeth working for them. I mean, you know, I got to tell you, just doing this whole interview with you, I've been staring at everything behind you for so long. And I'm just <laughs> dying to talk to you about all those things. Because <laughs> you really do beautiful work here. I mean, and just for oh, folks thanks. who listen to the audio version only, you know, I'm looking at Boris Karloff. I see some Lon Chaney in here. Yeah. Uh, we got the creature from the Black Lagoon. We have. For you Star Trek lovers out there, there's William Marshall hanging out in the very top. Oh, yep, yep. There he is. I mean, this this is actually, this is just a little bit of it, but I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, you know, there's a, my my entire room is surround, surrounded with all now, Is, is everything that we're looking at here your work, or is there some stuff that's not yours in here, too? Uh, everything except for those ones way up on that shelf up there, which are the original Aurora models. But uh, yeah, everything else in here is all mine. Um, and I've got probably another, I don't know, three times as much in the garage. So I've been doing it for quite some time. It's amazing. Work here. <laughs> for folks who might be coming into this new, uh, what are some of your standout pieces? What are the ones that you're most proud of that you'd love for people who are new to you to take a look at? I, I like the the um, some of the big heads. that and, and those are the ones that you see at the very top. Um. I don't know if you can get a good yes, idea. We got a creature. We have like. a yeah. Phantom of the Opera up there. Phantom of the Opera, right? There's a Nosferatu. There's uh, the Wolfman and things like that. And um, the larger pieces are great because they, there is a lot of real estate, and I can really get into the the tiny details. I I have somewhere, you know, if the character's older, you can get the little creases in the eyes, and I actually sculpt pores on all of these things and pores that, that change shape when somebody's grimacing or if they got, you know, if their face is relaxed, I mean, they go from round to, you know, they change shape. And so um, that kind of allowed me to do some of the work that I learned to do at my brother's shop because Kevin would have me come in and help him sometimes on some of the movies that he was doing when I wasn't acting. And so, um, so those are kind of my favorites. I think uh, uh, there's a pretty good uh, Christopher Lee Dracula up there in the corner that I kind of like. Oh yeah. Uh, and, I see uh, a really great Arnold Lee. Schwarzenegger as well. T uh, T eight hundred over there hanging out. Um, let's see. Whoops, it's the studio dropped. tour now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a T eight hundred over there. He's got a gun. That's a that's a sideshow piece. And uh, there's uh, Cinema Ket is a pretty good company, and they they um, combine they do what's called mixed media where they combine um, the hard plastic with uh, clothing, uh, with real clothes, and they try to make them, you know, it, it, uh, it's not quite a doll. They do really, really, really intricate work with uh, 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 some of the people that work in their, in their tailoring shop, and they, they build them just like you would real clothing. And um, so there's a pretty good godfather over there that I'm proud of. Uh, it comes in the chair and everything. And so, and it, it's, that's one third scale. So that's one of the bigger ones. Again, it gave me more real estate to work with, you know? So, uh, that's, that's probably one, probably my favorite is the, uh, is the Vito Corleone from, uh, the Godfather. 
I mean, the detail on this stuff is just mind blowing. It really is. Uh, but I know, you know, as an artist, you probably have like a little bit of a shorthand for yourself and how you're able to do things effectively without blowing your entire day just doing one thing. So, you know, I've always wanted to know because I'm a collector <laughs> of these things when I can afford them, you know, for things like pores, for things like minute little details, like how do you actually do stuff like that and not spend your entire day just stippling a piece of clay? You, you don't get you don't get out of that uh, uh, out of that uh, problem easily. You you spend your whole day stippling with clay. I mean, seriously, you you. I have lower back problems because I I I literally can spend, you know, uh, I'll spend a day on a little tiny shoe. I mean, you you can get into the detail just to the and and even more so now with uh, with what they're doing on computers because a lot of guys will sculpt on computers now. Um, although the, the printing is not so great yet. So that hasn't really caught up with clay yet. Uh, but it will, it will, it gets there every year, but yeah, I know if you're doing pours, it's one at a time and wow. you got to take a little tool and you just have to pop on your favorite bit of music or a great movie, you know, and, and I use high power glasses because the older I get, the harder it is to see. So I have those big jeweler's glasses and I just do this for hours at a time. And then I get up and stretch so that I don't, you know, atrophy. <laughs> my wife just she makes fun of me she says you know we're just going to put a lampshade on you and just have a party and you just sit there and, you know you don't have to bother anybody but uh, yeah I, i'm very good at being still for a long time long periods of time but you learn that in your trailer because it's you know you got no place to go so, that's true yeah 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 <laughs> and i'm glad that you brought up 3d printing because i feel like technology and art these are two things that are always at odds with each other there are some artists who can work within it, and usually it's a statement piece in most cases. But, you know, these days, they very much are at odds. I mean, we're seeing now with animation and even with acting, AI being an issue. So right. I'm curious about what your take is on 3D printing and just the current state of technology and how you think that's going to affect what you personally do, if it will affect what you personally do. And are you adapting or are you choosing to stay in your traditional medium? Well, I tell you, uh, they're coming for me. <laughs> those, uh, those guys they really are i mean for the longest time i was kind of okay with the fact that um a lot of what they were doing looked more like toys than it did pieces of art yeah and i still kind of um i mean i love the clay i really love the feel of it and i love you know my, my wife would be a lot happier if i was just doing it on computer because then i wouldn't get little bits of clay all over the entire house but i i think right now it's very very difficult because you know with all of the convenience of the computer, there are a lot of shortcuts. And the more shortcuts you take, I mean, you may work faster, but the less value I think uh, a piece like that has. Where um, I really try, as an actor, I kind of understand the moment that I'm trying to capture. I understand what's going on in the brain of the actor as well as what's supposed to be going on in the brain of the character. And so I try to breathe that kind of life into. Uh, the pieces that I do, because I think that makes them just a just a little bit more uh, special. You 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 really can enjoy uh, painting and creating, co-creating. Which is, I mean, part of what I do is is uh, our model kits in which they're not painted and put together. That that's what the modeler does, and so it's kind of a, you know it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between me and the modeler, and so they get a great sense of their own. Uh, uh, abilities when they can put something together and paint it just right. And, and so if I can give them that one moment from a movie that they really love, um, I think it's more successful than, than a lot of the stuff that's done AI. Um, because, you know, um, you literally can buy hands and shoes and, 
you know, uh, accessories and just put them on like a systems management guy. And uh, so a lot of people who don't really, who I would not really consider to be accomplished artists can put something together that looks okay um, simply by buying other people's work and kind of slapping it together. And so, um, but I, I think that there's something missing. I can always tell that there's something a little bit unthought of. Uh, or not thought out in some in, in what I see in the computer. They just kind of look to be, they look posed, but I don't I don't see the life uh, that I see in some of the pieces where uh, with some of the guys who work in clay. And maybe it's because they're there longer. Maybe it's because you know there are guys where you can do one half of the head and the, the computer will automatically sculpt the other half, so it looks too symmetrical. Um, and in the end, I think something that's done by hand is always going to be more valuable than something that's that's done with the aid of of a machine. And the fact that you have something on file, well, that file is going to last forever. So you can make multiple copies of this on and on ad, ad infinitum. Um, whereas, you know, some of my pieces, there's a hundred in the world and that's it. Yeah. Well, those kind of things tend to be more collectible. It's like the difference between a photograph and a painting. Um, I mean, there are some really good photographs, but you know, uh, you can recreate a photograph, and and yeah. where you, as you can't recreate a painting, you must own the original, or you have something that's not worth anything. So I'm hoping that that's the way it is, because I I, I have promised myself that I would try to learn ZBrush and some of these other um, uh, programs. But to tell you the truth, I've been so busy, I simply don't have the time. I mean, every time I think, all right, I'm going to take these two weeks and I'm going to learn this program. Somebody else will call or somebody else will, you know, it's all word of mouth with me. So people just say, hey, do this piece for me, do that piece for me, you know, and uh, people in the business and producers and comedians and, you know, people from all walks of life call me up and, and want uh, their favorite characters immortalized. And I, I, I think it's worth more uh, done by an artist yeah. with his own hands. Yeah, having known your work for years and seeing it again during this episode, you know, like I can tell a Jeff Yeager piece. And that's the thing. A lot of folks who might not know the statue world or art world as much. They might see something that's photorealistic and they just think it all looks alike, but they're kind right. of forgetting that there's a craft involved in this process. And not only is there a craft, but like I can tell your style, I can tell like your line work in a statue. I know it's you because of that, which you can't do as easily with with the 3D modeling. I feel like I think that's so not at like all. you were saying, you, you kind of do lose the soul that I feel when I look at your work. Right. I, I absolutely agree. I know my kill piece from, you know, uh, 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 from any one of uh, a bunch of artists, I I uh, I think that's very true. I think the artist's style comes definitely comes across in the clay where it doesn't. You know, yeah. when you've got a computer doing half the work for you. Like you know, when I look at your work, especially and this is just me going off on a tangent here, but like I can see kind of like almost elements of like J.C. Lion Decker in some of the outfits that you do, and some of the the way that you create line shape within it, similar to the way that he would do his uh, his work. Right, and, right. Uh, you know, there's like that kind of sensitivity and nuance that you bring to monsters which is just outrageous. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about what you do. Well, it, like I said, I've, I've just been such a big fan of those films ever since I was a kid. So I really do love them. And uh, I, I kind of feel a sense of responsibility. You know, if I'm recreating a character that Boris Karloff did, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of feel like I know him and I don't want to disappoint him. You know, <laughs> I mean, he died years, years ago, but uh you know, I do. I feel that sense of responsibility to the actor's performance to give it my best shot, so, which is, you know, like you were saying, how do you how do you sit there for so long 
Well, you do because you just don't want, you just want it to be as good as it possibly can for the modeler and for the actor, you know? And a lot of times you actually do have to, like Schwarzenegger, you do have to please him. You do have to get it past him. You do have to, you know, uh, get Stallone to agree and Stallone hates everything. But I got, <laughs> I, I got him to, to agree to, to a Rambo I did for him. So, I mean, uh, 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 yeah, there's, I, I feel a great responsibility. Now, because this is Trek Untold, after all, Jeff, have you done any Star Trek pieces? I have, actually, yeah, uh, from the original uh, Star Trek, um, the one that I grew up with. Um, uh, there's a company called Blackheart uh, Productions, and uh, they have asked me to do a series of uh, busts based on the original characters. And so I think we've got 16 or 18 of them now. <laughs> Are those yeah. still available right now or are those sold out? Yep. Yep. Uh, I think so. Um, uh, George Stevenson uh, is the the president and CEO, and uh, he does a lot of shows like Wonder Fest and Godzilla Fest. And um, and I think he still brings the entire set with him. So, oh, nice. yeah. yeah, yeah. So for folks who want to pick up some of your work, some of your garage kits, some of your statues, where can they go to do that? I have a Facebook page called the Jaeger Army which is actually not run by me. It's run by a gentleman named Paul Gill and another gentleman named Mark Wardling and another gentleman named Troy Nairt. And they have been fans of my work and clients uh, in the past. And so they asked permission to, uh, to use my name to kind of um, uh, be a place where modelers who buy the pieces that I do can come and work and share and, and uh, um, you know, just kind of show off their talents and stuff. And I, I don't get uh, a, a whole lot of uh, time to to spend on this site, but I do occasionally, you know, chime in and just tell them how wonderful I think the work is. And so, um, and if you go there and say, "Hey, listen, I'm looking for this or that," somebody in, you know, I mean, we have something like, I don't know, fourteen hundred uh, members of the of the the army, <laughs> um, and uh, somebody's going to know, so they'll be able to steer you in the right direction. And admittedly, I am a part of the Jaeger army, but I have to tell you that I've not actually bought one of your model kits proper yet. I'm honestly very intimidated by them. <laughs> I see <laughs> them I'm just like they're so beautiful. And here I am like with my little stubbly fingers. Like I come from art, art background as well. But model painting is a very different thing than, you know, flat painting, 2D painting, watercolor painting. It's completely uh, different. World. I don't know so if I'm, you notice, but I don't paint my own stuff either. It's I hard. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, occasionally I'll paint something for somebody but you know, I I get the same kind of intimidation painting. It's it's not easy, you know. That you, you it's best if you use a, a small um, uh, uh, airbrush, and those are really hard to work. So yeah, yeah. Air, and again, airbrushing is a whole different world. I mean, I was for a little while doing some minifigure painting in like the world of Warhammer 40k. I don't oh, care boy. about the game at all. Wow. I don't care an inch about Warhammer, but I like the little miniatures. So I just bought right. some really cheap, and I I enjoyed painting them, but. They're too much damn money. And honestly, I'd much rather paint your stuff. But again, like I don't do airbrushing. So I'm just like, can I actually even just paint it with a brush? I don't even know what the right way is to do this. I'm afraid to ruin the damn thing. So right, I, I, right. Well, me too. I got to tell you, um, a lot of people work in oils now uh, because the blending, you can blend it a lot easier and it's got a little control. I'm intimidated by the airbrush. Uh, I mean, when you're painting something in one six scale and the head's only about this big. Yeah. I mean, you got to really know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, Eyeballs um, are the worst thing in the world. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. I mean, I like it on a computer. I can blow it way up and then, you know, just <laughs> do it like that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, the, there are guys that just master this stuff. I mean, I mean, even the stuff that they that you see painted up here, um, most of it and all of Sideshow stuff, 
Um, that all comes from China. And uh, that's all painted on on a kind of an assembly line. And still, you know, for what it is, uh, I mean, some of these pieces go for, I don't know, two, three thousand uh, dollars. Yeah. It can be quite pricey, but uh, worth it because they really, really do great work. Really Absolutely do. is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep talking about your article, Dave, if we don't move on here. So I better just do that right now. Uh, Jeff, okay. Let's jump into our lightning round before I just like eyeball every single piece that you got behind you. There, all but, right. Uh, let's do it. Let's all do right, it. Jeff, how about best day on a set and worst day on a set? Wow. Okay. Worst day on a set. Well, one of them, I mean, I've had injuries and stuff, and I had a pretty serious back injury shooting a movie called Wing in a Prayer one time where, where um, you know, they they had an airplane that was – you know, actually tilting and stuff. And I went to uh, help somebody up and we fell and I, I got a pretty bad back injury. But the worst day was that I can't really even remember the, um, the, the name of the show. It was, it was um, about a, a woman who could think like serial killers do. And I know there were two of those and I can't remember which one it was because I've done both of them. Anyway, um, but I played the serial killer. I was the, the bad guy of the week. And so, uh, I ha- was supposed to, uh, beat up this woman. Um, and we had choreographed a thing where, um, you know, I slap her and she's supposed to go down and go and, and, uh, and, you know, it was a very complicated scene and we, we, we had things on a steady cam. So the camera's moving around us. And so the choreography had to be just right. And when you try to get it right, sometimes the adrenaline can get a hold of you. And I just pushed the thing a little bit too hard and I actually hit her. Oh. And she was a trooper and she kept going with the scene. And so I kept going with the scene. And at the end, um, she had to have ice and things like that. And it was, one of the only times I, you know, teaching stage choreography, I, I, I I'm usually pretty good at uh, being able to gauge distance. And I just had this one time when I just, you know, just tagged her. And I, I think, um, boy, even, even talking about it now, I just, all those feelings come back and I just, I couldn't apologize enough to this. And she was cool. I mean, she was like, Oh, you know, it happens or whatever, but I felt really, really bad for an entire day. So I'd have to say that's the worst day. <laughs> how about best day to make up for it now <laughs> best day um i did an episode it was one of the early things that i did i was doing an episode of the the new twilight zone a remake of the twilight zone called the once and future king written by uh george rr R. martin who wrote the game of thrones and uh you know he was young in his career it was the second gig i got i think it was the the first, the third job I had uh, after V. Um, and I was playing two parts. I played an Elvis Presley impersonator who goes back in time and meets the real Elvis Presley. And so, and the, the, the conceit was, is that I try to teach Elvis to sing who Elvis, who I also play thinks I'm his dead brother, Jesse come back to life. Because Elvis was very superstitious, uh, I, 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 I don't want to talk like that, you know, like Elvis Presley did, and, and uh, so I try to teach Elvis to sing rock and roll, and Elvis hates it. You know, what my mom will think about shooting out there dancing like that. I can't play that kind of music, and, that, and I was like, oh no, wait a minute, have I screwed up time by coming back in time? Because if you don't sing rock and roll, there'll be no rock and roll. Well, 
as I'm doing both of these parts, I, I, one of the guys who was, had a, had a role in the show was Red West, who was one of, uh, Elvis's entourage. And, uh, and, uh, he was, he, I, I spent the day talking to him and he would tell me all the stories, you know, that, that nobody hears about, you know, what Elvis was like and with the, when they were together and when they, you know, in the privacy of his own home and stuff. And I just was so fascinated uh, by, because I'd grown up like everybody else watching the movies and just, just a huge fan of his music. And I remember after I, I did a take as Elvis and I sat down and he looks over and he goes, pretty scary boy. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is, this is a cool day. That was a really cool day. That sounds like a lot of fun. That yeah. was a great one. Yeah. How about most memorable piece of advice that you ever heard that you still use to this day? That was given to me by, uh, there was a, they had hired a movement teacher um, because we needed to do some sort of um, uh, dancing. And I might've been on a movie I did called Shag, but uh, they, <laughs> But what he, this guy used to say to me and some of the other actors was, because I used to do a lot of work with props. I like to work with props. And because, you know, if you have something in your hand, it kind of relaxes you and stuff like that. And he kept trying to get me to put the props away. And just, and he would say, don't just, don't just do something, stand there. I mean, the famous thing is don't just stand there, do something. And he would say, don't just do something, stand there. And he would make me, uh, have no place to hide as an actor and just stand there. And if, when you do that, you're forced to confront the feelings that you're supposed to be having as the character. There's nowhere to hide. There's no mask to hide behind. There's no costume to hide behind. If you just let yourself stand there and think this could be really boring for the audience, but I'm going to do nothing except feel these feelings. And it actually uh, can be quite riveting. Uh, watching somebody who is that vulnerable. And so I, whenever, um, you know, a young actor will ask me uh, if there's a, something that I can tell them about acting, I'll say, don't just stand, don't just uh, do something, stand there. And uh, yeah, I carried that with me forever. That's some pretty practical life advice also, which is really yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And last thing for you today, Jeff, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Aside from the residuals, aside from the residuals, uh, <laughs> and that's a that's a big one. Um, I know. No, uh, well, I'll tell you. Uh, occasionally, um, I get to go with Bob and uh, some of the other uh, friends I've made in the Star Trek universe. Um, I get to go to the conventions, and uh, uh, one of my favorites is in Las Vegas because I, I also I'm a big poker player, so I love I love to like go to the convention during the day and take all the money for my autograph signing and gamble it away at night, uh, <laughs> but. Um, to be a part of something where that people are so passionate about, and I mean so passionate, they I've there somebody came up one time and they were dressed as the character Aiden from the show, and I said, "Wow, that's a really good uh, replica." And he goes, uh, "No, no, no," and he looks, and my name is stitched in the back of the thing. <laughs> He'd actually bought it at an auction, and they when they auctioned off some of the real costumes, and he had you know. And he put the makeup on and, and, and the time it took and the devotion that these people have and the, 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 just to see that kind of love that people have for something and how it can really become a, a heavy part of their lives. I mean, relationships have been born 
from people who who share the love of the show and and uh, new ideas. Um, people who work at NASA, I know uh, guys who work at NASA and and, and at Gromond, um, all of whom are Star Trek fans, and all of who got into um, uh, wanting to work for the for aerospace and for NASA by watching that show. So to know that I've been a part of something that huge that has affected that many lives, uh, that's that's probably the, the best thing about it. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for spending all this time with us today, educating oh, us certainly. not just about your acting, but also your amazing artwork, your amazing sculpting abilities. Uh, there's so much of Jeff Yeager to go around, whether it's acting, whether it's on screen, or it's something you can hold in your hands. He's everywhere, folks. So, uh, <laughs> That's right. I'm coming for you. And, I'll never and he's coming for you. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much. Appreciate all your time today. Oh, it was and, a real uh, pleasure. I, I very much look forward to, to uh, sucking up and buying one of your models finally. I'm going to do it. I'm going to ruin you know it. What? I'm going to do it. The prices are coming down, so I'll, I'll make sure you get something. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff. All right. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember... Fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.